The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Well, hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be back doing the program live. For the last two weeks, the program was pre-recorded because I was leading my two back-to-back Holy You retreats in at Unity Village in Lee Summit, Missouri. It was so amazing to be gathered in person with kindred spirits. Whoa, what a good time we had. Such a good time. So helpful to so many that we've decided to do it again. The same exact program four days in October, October 7th to the 10th. If you are at all interested, go to my website, SuzanneGiesman.com slash retreat and get the details because I know this one's going to fill as quickly as the last ones did. And if your soul is telling you to be there, I can't wait to meet you there. Wow. So we moved on from Missouri. Our life is never boring. I remember it was 25 years ago next week. On our wedding night, I said to Ty, I promise you, life with me will never be dull. But really, I had no idea what was coming down the pike. Yesterday, we were just outside Denver. Ty woke up. His back was in such bad shape from a muscle spasm. He said, Suzanne, I cannot get out of bed. And I looked at him and I said, well, I guess we need to call an ambulance. And he said, I guess we do. And my first thought is, how are they going to get him out of this RV? Well, that's a story for our next monthly mentoring the synchronicities the god winks the way it all came together was amazing i just love how the web connects us all but that also meant that as he's recovering i had to move us on today get the bus all hooked up to the car and drive our bus with the car behind it through downtown morning traffic in denver Wow, I got that check in the block, and I am happy to be coming to you from an office at the RV repair place. (laughs) Always a different place. Oh, my goodness, every week. So enough of that. If you hear noise in the background, it's because really I'm in somebody's office, and they're talking and walking outside the doorway, but we have a good internet connection, so I am looking forward to my conversation today with a guest who's been on the program before, but she has so much wonderful information to share, and she has... Just beautiful energy. You will love our discussion with Marjorie Woolacott, PhD. Let me tell you a little bit about her before I bring her on. She's a prior chair of the Department of Human Physiology and a member of the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. I want to talk to her about what exactly a neuroscientist does. But she's taught 
courses in neuroscience, as well as complementary medicine and meditation. She's president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and research director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And that's where we first met. She has a wonderful book called Infinite Awareness, which has won multiple awards. And it's about her research as a neuroscience scientist combined with self-revelations about the mind's spiritual power. Doesn't that sound great? So Marjorie, after that long intro, welcome back. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back with you. I love that uh, she and I are looking at each other uh, through video. I wish you all could see her. But... uh, Let's just go back. Let's just answer that first question. What does a neuroscientist do? Obviously, you're studying the brain, but what aspects of it? Well, I'm going to actually maybe take you back to when I was actually a young graduate student when it all started, because I think you'll see sort of a a progression, which is interesting. And that is that when I was a doctoral student, which was about maybe when I was 25 years old, I would sit up every night, late into the night in my neuroscience laboratory, listening to neurons talking to each other in this little invertebrate mollusk called Navinax. And I loved it because it's a beautiful little animal. It's about the size of a gopher. It's sort of light brown in color with gold and blue feet or fins. And what I would do is I would do an experiment in which I inserted this glass microelectrode into two of its golden neurons in its body. And as I penetrated those cells, I could hear the electrical activity of them talking to each other. So I would hear something like and then and the other neuron back and forth. And this was coming through a loudspeaker in my lab. And I swear, I felt like I was watching the workings of the brain and I was hearing it talk. And I was as happy as I'd ever been in my life. Happy as a clam. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was like eavesdropping on a conversation on the brain. So that's where I started. Now, then when I moved on in my research career, I started working actually on the development of balance control and walking in young children. And then I would put little um, kids that were just learning to walk about nine months to maybe a year of age on a little platform with a castle in front of it. And they would play with the castle as I would move the platform back and forward as I was measuring the activity of their muscles and their legs as they were beginning to learn to stand and walk. And so once again, I would hear in one electrode and then in another one of these sensors over the legs. And again, it was fascinating to watch how those muscle responses went from totally being disorganized to this perfect orchestration as they were responding to this way and standing upright. So that was what I did in my early career. And in fact, all the way through just recently in the last maybe five years, I was looking at children with cerebral palsy and how we could help their balance be better, people with Parkinson's disease or stroke, how we could improve their balance and their walking and their movement. So that's where I was coming from before I had my first meditation experience that sent me into a slightly different direction. (laughs) Wow. Well, you just led right into the second question then. It was, how did you move from that? But I just want to comment that I know everybody can feel your passion for your work. And what a blessing that is to be so excited about your work. Wow. Yes. So tell us about that that life-changing experience or career-changing, path-changing Well, so in fact, I was in my first um, position as a neuroscientist back in Virginia, and my sister happened to be up in the Catskill Mountains um, taking a retreat with a a meditation master from India, and it was my birthday. It was, in fact, August the 25th is my birthday, and she said, don't you want to come up and visit me for your birthday, and I'll give you this special gift. I'm going to give you a meditation retreat for a birthday present. Now, remember, I'm this 
neuroscientist that's very, very materialistic and skeptical. And I thought, well, you know, I want to see my sister. It'll be fun. I'll, I'll go and I'll just see what happens. And how and long when, ago was this? This was when I was 30 years old. And that means it was 1976. So wow. many years. So this is yeah. before meditation was as mainstream as it has, as it has become. Exactly. Not at all. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'd heard about meditation and she had given me a bit of an experience one time when I visited her, you know, for a few minutes. So I knew a little about it, but that's all. And so what happened is that in that first meditation session in this retreat, um, basically we were told that the Swami was going to be initiating us and mm -hmm. the initiation was going to be like an awakening of an energy. And I didn't know what that meant. I was skeptical, but I decided, look, I'm here for the weekend. I'm curious. I'll just give myself to it and see what happens. And when the Swami came to me, I actually felt his thumb and his four fingers right between my eyes on the bridge of my nose. And what happened is I felt literally a current of energy go from his fingers down through my body into the center of my chest. And now I'm alert. My eyes are closed, but my senses are fully engaged. Wow. So when I feel this energy, then stop right in the center of my heart and begin to feel the energy like pulsating outward in this feeling of like love and joy just moving through my body and beyond, I'm thinking, what on earth is happening? But I have the sense I'm home. It's like suddenly I felt my heart is my home and I finally found my heart for the first time in my life. Wow. Wow. I think everybody listening is saying, how do we find this guy, right? We're going to think <laughs> that one person holds the key to this, but I, you go ahead, keep going. Well, I mean, it, and I think what was interesting for me is that what happened to me then is that at the end of that retreat, when I went back home to my university position in Virginia, that very next morning when I got up, I got up at 5 a.m. spontaneously and I got up to meditate. Mm. And I did that because I had the sense that simmering below that surface awareness was this experience of love and, and sort of quiet joy just waiting for me to find it if I could quiet my thoughts. And I've been meditating ever since. So wow. I should say that was the start. And then I just began to like experiment with that. You know, I'm a scientist. And so it's like, so can I go into my inner laboratory and try to figure out what's going on that allows my mind to become quiet? So it was sort of fun then to experiment on the inside too and see how I could help make those states inside of me come to the surface so that I could actually feel that joy and that love, not just in meditation, but sort of like you talk about in all your courses throughout the whole day. And what was your experience through your personal experience through that practice? Well, I mean, so first of all, I want to mention that. So the practice itself is, is I guess there are two aspects I want to say. One is that like everybody else that tries meditation, my mind was really active in the beginning. And in fact, even today when I meditate, when I first sit down to meditate, there is my mind chomping on the latest thoughts that have come in. And so I realized that the first thing I learned was I have to have patience. And then if I have patience and I focus on my breath, that I begin to find this gap between the thoughts that begins to get a little bit wider and a little bit wider. And then gradually I can begin to sink into that gap, into this place of stillness. And then maybe another thought comes up, but then I'm not so attached. And then that thought can just sort of go away and I can go back to that place of stillness. And I think that what then begins to happen on some days more than others is that I begin to then go back to that place of the heart where I feel like this joy just percolating in the heart like this sweet vibratory energy. And sometimes it feels like it's percolating between my eyes and sometimes at the top of my head. And in those moments, I feel I don't want to be anywhere else, but right yeah. here, everything is perfect. 
And of that's course, then it. I try to carry it into the day. Yes, that's it. That's it. I, that's what we're trying to help others to find themselves. When you said earlier, you felt like you'd gone home. This is home. And that's exactly what it is. And when I teach the the Awakened Way, the third principle is you find your way home with a capital H through the heart. And you've done that. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. How did that influence your work moving forward as a neuroscientist? Well, so here's the interesting thing. So that happened again when I was about 30 years old, and it took me many, many years being a professor, I'm now moving on to the University of Oregon and doing research in my rehabilitation neuroscience to find a way of putting those two parts of myself together, my meditative side and my neuroscientist side. Mm -hmm. And they're just totally two different worlds. One is the materialist that believes that neurons produce my consciousness. And the other one says, wait a minute, I had an experience that says that that's not the case. There's something wow. more than and so uh, I think for the longest time, I continued to do my research at the lab, and then I would go to a meditation retreat, and I would talk in a whole different language in the meditation wow. retreat. And then finally, I said, wait a minute, I need to put the two halves of my life together. Yes. And that's when yes. I said, I'm, I'm going to start doing research in my laboratory. And luckily, I had some students that were intrigued by meditation and by like Tai Chi. And we began doing research on meditation in my lab. And that was fun, because what we started to do was to say, okay, we have the experience that our mind becomes quieter. And in fact, my attention seems to become more focused. My clarity seems to be brighter. Um, can I actually see that in the laboratory? And in fact, the answer was yes, that like other neuroscientists around, in fact, the world that have begun to look at meditation, we find that you really can see that a person's attentional focus becomes like fine-tuned and you can stay focused on a subject for longer periods of time. I know you've experienced that yourself. Oh, yes, and, yes. It, so it flows into everything you do. And so then we now had research articles that showed that your EEGs change, that particular parts of the brain become stronger in inhibiting impulses that you don't want to like come to the surface. Mm -hmm. You can stay really focused. Distractions don't bother you. And so I think but it was... If, may I interrupt there? It's, it's, this is what I'm going to be sharing in my mentoring webinar. How just yesterday with the example I told of Ty saying you need to call 911. And I was just focused, clear. There was zero fear. There was zero excitement. It was just, okay, this is what life is presenting. Let's just deal with it. And I know that's a result of the meditative practice. If I may shift gears a little here, so many people listening to this program are dealing with grief and the passing of a loved one. You and I met at the International Association of Near-Death Studies Conference. What brought you, you're now a neuroscientist, you're, you're studying meditation, involved in it fully, what brought you to the IANS conference, Near-Death Studies? What first happened was that I... I said to myself, I want to write a book on consciousness and what it really is to understand it for myself. And then if I can also share that with others, all the better. And that's what started me writing the book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of the Scientific Mind. Now, as I was writing that book, I was actually at a meditation retreat with a fellow meditator who was actually helping to run the technical aspects. And she happened to be an MD who, when I found out during one of the pauses, when I told her I was writing this chapter on near-death experiences, said, oh, I had one. Her name is Bettina Payton, and she is then actually part of 
two chapters of my book because not only did she have a near-death experience when she was um, a young doctor during the birth of her third child and her heart stopped and she was totally aware they were trying to resuscitate her. But then when she came back to awareness, she knew consciousness was fundamental, even though she'd been in a materialist beforehand. And, and may I stop you just a second for yeah. those who are new to this one. When Marjorie yeah. Willicott says consciousness is fundamental, it's it's the point she made earlier that consciousness is not a product of the brain. Your brain does not produce your awareness. Consciousness comes first. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So and it was because continue. Yeah, because she knew her heart had stopped and she knew she was out there in the operating room in her awareness, watching her body from above and watching the resuscitation from above. So that, that's how she knew consciousness was, as I call fundamental, that it doesn't need neurons firing to make it happen because the neurons weren't firing. And I think what was interesting is she then said, I want to get back to that place of my dear death experience, which she felt was full of ecstasy and joy. And she realized she wasn't that body that was lying on the operating room table. She was something much, much more than that. And so yeah. she, she then looked for meditation. She found a meditation teacher, in fact. And in that moment of her first meditation retreat, what happened to her is she went back to that space inside of herself that, again, what I really call her deepest heart, where she'd had the near-death experience. And she said, ah, I was home there, and now I'm home again through meditation. Yeah. Yes, and that's how we can meet our loved ones who have passed because we meet them in the heart where we are all at home. It's, wow. Here's a question of, what do you call it? A out of left field question here, a curveball. So if consciousness is fundamental, why have those neurons in the brain at all? <laughs> well, and, you know, and I think it's a great question because our loved ones on the other side don't have those that's neurons right. in the brain. They're doing fine. So this is the way I look at it from, again, a, a certain, I think what they call it is this, the idealistic philosophy perspective. And that is that we're all one consciousness. We're this vast consciousness. We're all a network. And you've talked about that in your courses. But then this vast consciousness says, I want to be able to actually enjoy myself. I want to be able uh -huh. to learn about myself. And so it says, let me experience this play of becoming embodied so that I can and learn about myself through other selves, through these interactions. That's and if it. we can just remember that, then it becomes a little bit lighter and we don't take life so seriously. Right. And so the brain is actually a filter of this consciousness through which we see the world uniquely in this earthly experience. That's my understanding. How about you? Right. And I think that that term filter is perhaps the most important word for me as a neuroscientist in my understanding of how consciousness works, that literally, if we didn't have the brain and people in their near-death experiences who don't have the brain active have this vast awareness and also a sense of connection with everybody, if we didn't have that brain filtering that vast awareness, that's where we would be all the time. But the point is that it's hard to function in a three-dimensional physical reality if you have all of that sensory information coming in at once to all your senses. And so it's it's a very, very logical thing to have the brain filter out most of it so that we can function very um, efficiently in the world. And that's what yeah. we do. But of course, then we miss out on the mystical experiences unless we can turn down the filters at certain times. Meditation, when people are doing mediumship work, things like that, then we turn down the filters and then we can experience something much greater. This is so wonderful. We speak the same language, although you can go way over my head if you really turn it up. <laughs> <laughs>
So I'm so honored that you took my mediumship class last December. What led you to that and how's it going for you? Well, so that was so interesting. I, my Actually, my sister, um, who was the one that led me to meditation in the first place, told me that she had signed up for it. And I thought, hey, if she's signing up for it, I want to sign up for it, too, so we can, like, share and find out what happens together. And, in fact, I think that a third one of our friends took it at the same time. And I did it because I don't have experiences where um, I actually communicate with my loved ones or other people on the other side. But at the same time, I have deep experiences of joy and connection and meditation. And I wanted to see if I could learn more about how the two of those really are similar in a certain sense, mediumship and my own meditative experiences. And what I discovered is that I didn't ever have the feeling that my what can I say that that like a loved one or someone like um, from the other side was right in front of me. Mm-hmm. But my, you know, I had you had us break up into these smaller, wonderful groups where we practiced on this together once a week. And so I would tell them, well, you know, I, I'm not as advanced as some of you because some of them intuitively just from the beginning when they were born could do this. But mm-hmm. I would give them hints of what I was experiencing. And sometimes whatever I was experiencing about them in that moment or what was happening in that moment helped them see something else. So, for example, I might say, I feel like this great, joyful, radiant energy like around you. And that's what I would experience rather than someone talking. And then we would just talk about what that might mean. So I realized that I kept hearing you say in the background, no one should say they can't do it. (laughs) Be sure that you're open to doing it and then see what happens and be curious and be patient. And so for me, it's a matter that I will need perhaps more practice if I want to do it, but I've learned a lot more from just interacting with other people as they're also struggling to get the mind quiet so that they can begin to hear these wonderful beings from the other side talking to them. And what a gift that is. Oh, I'm just thrilled that you're doing that. Wow. I want to tell everybody that in the second half, we're going to talk about a really fascinating new area of study that Marjorie's involved in and a study that she did about after-death communications. So I know you'll find that very interesting. What is your latest project related to consciousness? Right now, I think the latest project has to do with exactly that experience I had in that first meditation. And what that's often called in Eastern traditions is kundalini awakening, the energy that people in China call the chi, Japanese the ki, etc. But what is going on? I mean, that was fascinating to me that that happened. And I still feel that energy moving in my body in meditation. So I decided to work with with a friend, Yvonne Kaysan and Russell Power, who had done a large study, questionnaire study about people that had kundalini awakenings in a variety of contexts and just asked them questions about what triggered the experience. And I should say what triggered it was a variety of things. Sometimes spontaneously, they would wake up to an awakening in the middle of the night, Hmm. um, feel energy moving through their body or light a light being in the room, and that would waken it up. Sometimes deep meditation, um, sometimes through yoga or a near-death experience. And I think the key issue of that study was we looked at their transformation, and that is something that I think you've talked about as well. Even with your own transformation and mediumship, it's like their whole view of life changed. And first of all, they became more sensitive to the they're more empathetic sensitive to the feelings of others more um sensitive in terms of their own visual and auditory um experiences and also 
they stopped being so materialistically oriented. They suddenly saw that there were other values in the world that were more important and more um, understanding about the importance of seeing that life is a continuum going from this life on into another, that death is not the end of life. So it was beautiful to see their increases in creativity, their um, increases in their compassion for others, all of those things, wanting to care for other people more. So you could begin to see that whatever is happening with this energetic awakening, it literally starts this seed of growth that then begins to grow into this beautiful little tree and then more and more like um, branches and leaves that spread us out into this feeling of connection with others that changes our way of interacting with the whole world. Can you see my tree of life earrings I'm wearing? <laughs> Very fitting today. Well, that's just beautiful. I hope that everybody's listening is feeling right now, I want some of that. And it is as close as setting the, the intention of doing some kind of a contemplative practice regularly. Yeah, I highly recommend my, my latest, one of my latest videos on YouTube, The Sip of the Divine, S-I-P. Check that one out for just something anybody can do. But Marjorie, I'm really curious. You must have given a lot of thought to this, but how do you think or why do you think that Swami back in 1976 was able to transfer that feeling of energy, the awareness of energy from your third eye down to the heart? What did and, that? You know, what's interesting is that, of course, in India and Japan, China, and these Eastern countries, they've known about this, and probably our indigenous people in the United States um, have known about that forever. There is an amazing tradition that is called Kashmir Shaivism from the north of India, Kashmir, from around the nine and ten hundreds, that actually talks in detail about this particular awakening of energy. They call it Shaktipat, that literally means the descent of the energy. And they say it can happen spontaneously, as we've heard about in our study, or through a real master that has like made that energy so awaken and unfolded in their own life that they're like a catalyst. Mm -hmm. And that literally catalyzes the awakening of that in you. And, you know, that particular Swami was Swami Muktananda, but there are Ramana Maharshi was another one from India. Um, there are so many of them that have lived throughout history, and they're from all traditions. I think it could be that Teresa of Avila from the Christian tradition was one of those people that also, you know, she was certainly enlightened um, and probably had that ability to actually catalyze that experience in other people. And so actually, he likely did not even need to touch you physically, put his fingers there. He, it's just that transmission, the energy is so powerful. Yeah, I think that that's the case. And sometimes in people, it comes through dreams. It literally like a master of meditation um, will come to them in their dream and it will happen in their dream because they're ready, they want it, and they draw the energy to them. And you were right at the time, as they yes, said. I didn't know it, but I was definitely right. My subconscious wanted it desperately, I'm sure. <laughs> Your soul was saying, all right, the science is great, but let's give her the personal experience and put her on this dual path. And eventually she'll integrate the two together and write this great book, which again is called Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. We're chatting with uh, beautiful Marjorie Woolacott. Her website is the same as her name, and that's W-O-O-L-L-A-C-O-T-T.com, MarjorieWoolacott.com. We're going to come back after the break and talk about this new field of study I told you about that I hope you find as fascinating as I do. So come on back after the break.
Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. All right. This is such, such a lively conversation about a great topic. We're talking with neuroscientist Dr. Marjorie Woolicott. And Marjorie, you recently completed a study with several other distinguished researchers on after-death communication and several other topics. I'll leave it to you to describe it and what you found out. Yeah, I mean, let me first tell you about the purpose of the study, and that is that we realize that within the scientific community, and that includes our medical community, there's no consensus about the origin of after-death communications, like mediumship that you are also uh, clearly um, doing yourself. And the question really is, are those perceptual experiences which people might have, for example, in a dream of their loved one comings or hearing the loved one talking to them in their mind or seeing them standing right in front of them, um, real or are they not? And I think what's interesting is that when you look at the scientific community and um, the general public, there are three ways we can think about it. One is that um, the materialist point of view, which is, oh, you know, they were just... um, sad, they were grieving, and they were thinking about the loved one, and that's all it was. It was just some something in their imagination, or maybe a hallucination caused by their grief. <laughs> and then the next one is that, well, maybe what it is, is that because they actually often give you information you didn't know about and you can prove is true, maybe there's a way that they're using telepathy in some way mm-hmm. to talk to you from the other side. And then third, maybe it's even more than that in some cases, and maybe what it is is that literally they're creating some sort of a subtle or an energetic form that materializes in front of you for a short period of time when you actually see them as if they're right there and feel them as if they're right there. So what we wanted to do was to actually do a large study and see whether we could actually ferret out what is going on in these after-death communications and what's really happening there. So that's what it was about. And that's I should say- so exciting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what was interesting for me first was that actually people said they did not feel this was just a thought in their mind. That in fact, I think it was like 87% of the people said, for example, when they heard the person talking, this was not a thought, this was the person's voice that they could identify. So there was no question to them. So what's so cool about that is I can just feel so many of you listening to this show right now saying, yes, yes, but people don't believe me, but I know it was real. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? That feeling that 
I don't care what you say, it was real. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the other interesting thing for me is that it came, depending on the person, through almost all of the different senses. So sometimes it was visual, the person standing there in front of you, or you see them actually in a dream as if they're there. Sometimes they touch you, and you can feel the touch of their hair or their um, hands. Sometimes you that. smell, yeah. you did Ty wow. did. Ty did. My, my destroyer Kevin yeah. husband. And he cried. He felt Susan's two fingers pulling him to the side on a trail they used to hike on. And that was, that's life changing for, for people, as I'm sure you found out in your study. Yeah. Wow. So, in fact, that was another interesting point. We actually asked the people if they felt a resistance to their t- the touch of the loved one, because that would also say that it was real. And just like with Ty, they felt the person like pushing down on their skin. They could feel the person's hand or their fingers. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that was one of them. And then, of course, the fragrances. Like, it was one person who actually smelled the coffee, the aroma of the coffee that her dad would always be cooking every morning when he came to her in um, in her room. So, so that was interesting to me that all those senses are active. And then I think the other thing that was interesting to me is that 80% of them said they received a message from the person. And I thought that was another interesting right. point. And um, it could be a, a visual one or an auditory um, after-death communication, but they said the person was definitely wanting to give them a message. But the most common message was, I'm just fine over here on the other side. Don't worry about me. Did I you thought, all hear that? This is research, neuroscientists and her colleagues. This is what they learned. And how many people were in this study, Marjorie? There were I, I, over a thousand originally. I think it came down to 933 or something like that when they actually looked at all the, da- the data that were the best data to use. So this is a large study. Yes. Wow, and 80%. Then, yeah. Yes. And then if I can share with you one man's um, experience, because it seems to bring together a lot of this in terms of how real these things are, which make me actually think that it's as if this person is able to create some sort of an energetic substance or subtle substance that you actually see with your senses. So here's the story. This man says one morning he was awakened at 6 a.m. and he could see someone walking on his front porch through his bedroom window. And he thought, who would be here so early? And so he opens the front door and he sees this woman who is not facing him. She's, her back is to him and she's crying. And he asks if she's okay. And she turns around and it's his, his grandmother. And she spoke and she asked him for forgiveness and she apologized for no longer talking to him after his father had passed. And she told her it was okay and he forgave her. And then she walked toward him and she says she hugged him. And he said, I felt her frail body hug me and I hugged her back and I felt her clothes. I felt her smell. And she thanked me as we hugged. And I felt this most intense feeling of love. And he said, I started to cry. And she said, he said then that she turned into this most brilliant white light and he had to close his eyes because it was so bright. And he said, I could see the light then fading away from behind my eyelids because his eyes were closed. And when I opened my eyes, she was gone. And he says, I was standing there with my arms still looking like I was hugging someone and I was in shock. And he said, I went back into the house and I laid down on my bed and my wife woke up and I told her what was happening what it happened. And she said, my grandmother had died seven years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I hear a story like that, it's like, 
I mean, literally, she was right in front of him, hugging him. It's like that to me. That's amazing. That that experience is so real, realer than real. So, and what is stunning about that is that at that retreat I just led, Unity Village, we had notebooks that we gave to everybody, and there was a quote from my guide Sanaya, and they said that if all of us could truly see our true magnificence, our inner light, we would at first be shocked by that light and then just like the report said have to shield our eyes because the light would be so brilliant and that's mm-hmm. that's all of us right now and he get, had that experience of someone who had passed i love that you chose that example yeah and, and and here's just one more amazing thing for me that i i keep wondering about it's like she was able to come down into a form he could see and feel and hug and smell and yet then she dissolved in this brilliant white life that was almost too difficult to even look at and she's both i mean i think and we're both oh, yeah we're, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and so we wonder why doesn't that happen more often and i truly believe our experiences happen when we're ready for them and in just the right way for each of us. And if they don't happen to us personally, we get to celebrate that man's story through you telling it now. Yes, yes. And so then I want to tell you one more thing, because I think the other fascinating thing that um, is helpful in this study is that the question is, are these real or not? And one of the ways that I think a materialist scientist, like I used to be, would have to like say, I don't know how I could ever um, respond to that in a negative way, is that these people share information that nobody else knows about. And that is something that couldn't happen through your just having your imagination or a hallucination. So I, maybe I can tell you about one more that I thought was interesting. Oh, bring it on. <laughs> we, love, we eat this stuff up. <laughs> So this is one about locating a, a, an item that they didn't know. And the person that shared it says this. She said, my deceased friend came through with a message for his wife. And it started with telling this. It said, tell Beverly, his wife, the key is. And they said, we all assumed it would be the key is love or something similar. Instead, he went on to tell us where a particular key was in his former home. Okay. So he rang her and the friend rang her and she said, I've been looking for that key all weekend. And wow. it was the key to the gun cupboard. And she wanted a friend to take this old gun away. She said, this proved to me that the message was real, not my imagination, as I had no idea they had a gun or a key or a gun cupboard. Um, again, so once again, you go, oh, my goodness. It's like there is the perfect example yeah. of the husband coming over to the other side and say, and interestingly, he doesn't go to the wife. He goes to a friend who can hear him. And yeah, friends. that's right. That's right. Oh, these are the kind of stories that when they come up in my readings, I just love sharing them. And I call them not telepathy moments. Yeah. Yeah. What a fascinating study to be involved in. Did you have to pinch yourself that you were part of that? I did. And I, maybe I'll even tell you a little bit about how I got involved, because okay. this has been done by Evelyn Elsesser and um, Chris Rowe, and they had collected all the data, but they had so many interesting questions to ask, and they had heard me talk at a conference in England called Beyond the Brain that David Lorimer um, organizes. And um, they said to me at the conference, would you like to be part of the study and actually take a portion of the data and analyze it? And I went, yes! <laughs> Love. To me, as a neuroscientist, that is the most amazing thing in the world, to actually begin to ferret out how consciousness really works and how we communicate 
communicate with the other side and all the intricacies about it. It's fascinating. It is. I have a quick question for you. You said the materialist scientist that I used to be. So what do you call what you are now? <laughs> well, you know, some people would say, um, well, maybe there's dualism, there's the mind and the body, but I like this philosophy that some people call idealism, which simply means we're all consciousness, and that infinite consciousness simply comes down into bodies, and we are um, perfectly, infinitely conscious, and we're also embodied at the same time. So I like to think that it's one non-dual um, universe that we're in, but we're simply, in a certain sense, um, identified with our body instead of identified with our vaster self. And my yeah. journey is moving back toward my identification with my vaster self so I can really experience my oneness with you, Suzanne, and with other people on the planet. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's it. But I don't know what you, how you would label yourself an idealist scientist. Yeah, somebody, yeah. I mean, basically, I would identify myself perhaps as a post-materialist scientist, oh, and that's how, that's it. Yeah, so because that means we've gone beyond materialism and we're into something else that is much, much more than materialism. Oh, I hope that it's catching. I really do. Just for the joy that those who come around get to experience. <laughs> yeah. So. This study that you did is leading to or has led to a new field of study. That is, this is what I said we would talk about after the break. Why don't you introduce that to everybody? I'm sure it will be exciting for some to hear about it. Yeah, so the area is actually a new area, and some people call it transpersonal psychology, and others call it, um, again, the name is... Um, <laughs> paranormal, right? Um, yeah. Psychology. And clinical parapsychology. Yeah, clinical parapsychology versus transpersonal psychology. They're both the same thing. What they're about is helping psychologists who don't have a background in paranormal phenomena like after-death communication actually help their clients more when the clients come to them. And maybe I'll take a step back. What we find in these studies is that many of the people find the after-death communication um, or a near-death experience, for example, or a mystical experience, very, very wonderful and uplifting, but some people don't know how to put it into their current worldview. And for some people, it can be very, very disorienting. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you um, have your mother come to you in the middle of the night and it's like, was that a dream? Was that a hallucination or was it real? It felt real, but I don't know. And then when they talk to their friends, their friends sometimes laugh at them and say, oh, you know, that, that was just a dream. It wasn't real. So what we find is that those people are the ones that need a clinical psychologist that is trained in the paranormal or that yeah. is trained in what we call transpersonal events so that that person can actually listen to them be with them and tell them this is perfectly normal. Wow. And I think that's the main thing, that this is normative. Everybody has these experiences to one extent or another, and therefore you need to actually realize that, that you can learn to integrate it into your life and you can learn to help it actually expand your understanding of who you are and what the world is. I mean, when I hear you say this, I just want to shout, this is such an amazing time to be alive. And yet I know that in just a few years, we'll look back at 2021 and say, oh, my God, they were still living in the dark. They had no idea what we were a part of. But you're absolutely right. And I know that so many people who 
follow my work and attend my classes, listen to this show, are psychologists and social workers. And right now, the thought that they can specialize in and find others who specialize in helping people normalize their paranormal experiences is so exciting. It is. Yeah. And I, and I think what was interesting when I heard about how they're doing it um, in some universities is that they are training you in clinical psychology in a normal way, but they're adding in all these other courses and experiences related to what we really know about after-death communication and near-death experiences and spiritual awakenings so that the psychologists can really understand and give it a context for themselves and then also give a context for the people that might be confused about what really happened. So I think that is a wonderful thing. And maybe I can add one more thing. They said that in one particular study, in these particular sessions between the psychologist and the client, sometimes synchronicities would happen. And the psychologists weren't necessarily aware of what synchronicities even were. And they began to then have their own like awakening themselves about something happened to their client and they would happen like at the same time, they'd hear about it, you know, at another moment in the day. And then they would find out they both had exactly the same thought or something like that. Uh Welcome to our world. (laughs) (laughs) So did your study address whether or not it was helpful to share these with a clinician? And if so, what were the findings? Right. Yes. I mean, so this particular study didn't, but then I looked at um, other studies and in fact, my own study on energetic awakenings, we asked that question, was it helpful? And in our study, 80% of the people said it was absolutely not helpful. And I'll take a step back. Only about 45 to 50% of the people shared it with a clinician. Ah. And then all those that shared it, 80% said it was very distressing to them in that they were told something um, like, oh, probably you just need more exercise or you need to eat better or something like that. But they had no understanding about the power of the experience. And the same thing even happens today in um, these clinical articles that I was reading. And I think it's a little bit discouraging because some of the people, even in 2019, which is two years ago, were basically calling these hallucinations, bereavement hallucinations. And Mm. they were saying, well, we don't know whether these bereavement hallucinations are pathological or whether they're beneficial, but right there, just calling them a bereavement hallucination isn't helpful. So I think that there's the problem. We need to get rid of that term altogether in the medical sciences. Don't call it a hallucination. Um, Actually call it a real experience with someone from the other side. And then the other thing they said is that the psychologists need to simply be there with you and listen to your story and then help you integrate it into your life and let you know it's normal. And that's not what psychologists typically do when they come from a clinical perspective and they haven't had any training in that area. They basically want to change the subject because they don't know how to deal with it. Uh So so isn't that interesting? They said that the clients that were most satisfied were the ones where the, um, psychologist simply sat with them and listened to them and um, really told them that it was fine and helped them explore the experience themselves. So I thought that was wonderful. It is. The only reason I laughed at that because it's it's not optimal that they changed the subject is because when I first started talking about the afterlife, when, when we found out my stepdaughter Susan was still with us, my brother kept changing the subject every time I brought up mediumship and my new book on mediumship. And now he's totally on board. No more changing the subject. So Marjorie, I don't know when you plan to re- retire, but you're not allowed to because you have to come <laughs> back and research again in the future and see how 
things they are changing. Well, and can I just give you the title of one subject, which said a study, which I think relates to what you talked about. It's by Roxburgh and Evenden, and 2016 was when it was done. The title was "Most People Think You're a Fruit Loop." Clients' experiences of seeking support for anomalous experiences. And I think that says it all. And again, that was just five years ago. So we're working on it with this new area of psychology. And how do you see the trend? Uh, is it rapidly changing or are there people still, scientists digging their heels in? Or what, what, what are you facing? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that if people were trained in a traditional medical background and they've never had an experience themselves that was spiritual, they're going to dig in their heels and they will have a hard time dealing with that. Uh, I think the beauty is that we're getting more training now in psychology departments and for medical schools, um, for doctors, um, because we have psychiatrists that go through medical school and they need to know about near-death experiences as well and understand that these are very beneficial for people and understand that there are different views on their, um, what we would call their, I want to say reality or, or the veridical nature, because some scientists say, no, no, no. But a lot of people say this is real. And we have the evidence from all of these scientific studies that you and I know about as well by Bruce Grayson, um, Pitten Van Lommel and others. So a lot of medical doctors are beginning to be more curious about this and begin, and the younger ones. So the beauty is you go to medical yeah. school and the younger ones are actually with their ears open, ready to hear. And hopefully meditating to get through med school <laughs> in a sane way. Wow. You, you said repeatedly, may I just share one story? And I know that we would all love to hear some more stories. Do you have any others that stand out from your studies of the after-death communications or some that really stuck in your mind that helped you just, just know this is real, what I know? There was certainly there was another one that I found rather interesting that was about um, a man who um, whose um, spouse had died and when he was looking for something in the house he couldn't find it anywhere um, but a friend had said to him look I know that there were some um, photographs that I have of both of you. And I know that they're somewhere in the house and could you please, please look for them? And he said, I had no idea, but he said, I then went inside mentally and I asked my spouse, where could they be? Where were they? Yeah. And he heard in his mind as clear as day, they are on the top shelf of the cupboard. And he thought there's no way they're on the top <laughs> shelf of the cupboard. But of course, you know, you have yeah. to look. Of course, he goes up, he gets a chair so he can get to the top shelf of the cupboard, and there are the photos that the friend had left them. Wow. So one more of those things where it was like, wow, it's like, how can you deny the yeah. accuracy of the person communicating with you in that way? Yeah, when the person has no idea whatsoever. So these experiences often become a catalyst for transformation in a person's belief system and even how they approach life. What can you tell us? about that and what is really happening in these cases? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. What I'm beginning to understand is that, first of all, after-death communication and near-death experiences and mystical experiences and meditation are all part of a larger experience, really, that's all connected. So yeah. that's the 
first thing. And the next thing in terms of the catalyst is that I think what's happening is this, and now I'm going to put on my neuroscience hat for a moment. There is a network in the brain called the default mode network. And that network is our mind wandering network that creates our stories and our narrative about ourselves. And that network seems to be turned way down when you have a near-death experience. In fact, it's turned off in a near-death experience because your brain is still. It's turned way down in meditation. And they've just done some um, research I just read today on mediumship, where they say when people are doing trance writing and mediumship, the brain turns way down as well. Yeah. So what's happening is that there's this catalyst that teaches your brain somehow to turn down those networks to allow then these experiences to come through. And then you know how to get back there because you've been back there before to that place of stillness and you can find it again and again. I love that. You said that these experiences are part of a larger experience. Has a name been given to that and what is it? You know, when you say that, I would simply say it's that experience of unit of awareness. I don't oh, know nice. how, it, when you talk about um, sort of like Indra's web, the idea that there are these light connections between all of us and this vast network of infinity, and we're all connected via that network of light, that's what I think it is. And we connect with it through after-death communication, near-death experiences, meditation, whatever, yes. How about you today? Any personal experiences? You said not through mediumship in your circle, but any personal experiences of what I call the NOEs? No other explanation that it's <laughs> web. You know, I should say that I have had certain experiences that are ones where I have a sense that my mother, for example, or my father is like really with me. And I have those myself in a, uh, a non-visual way, but a psychic came to stay at our house one time when we were away and she was house sitting for us. And it was actually the house that my parents left us in Arizona. And she was there for two weeks. And when she, we came back, she said, in fact, to my sister, I want you to know that both your mother and your father were there. And they said, they loved so much what you're doing in the house. And they hmm. feel so happy that you're still living it and you're still enjoying it. And it gave me this wonderful sense of an affirmation that my feeling that my parents are around is real. I don't see them, but I feel them. And the psychic yeah. saw them and heard them. So oh, it was great. goosebumps. I love that. And you can trust that. So Dr. Marjorie Woolicott, with one minute left in the show, what do our listeners need to hear? I think that they need to, first of all, trust their own inner connection with the rest of the world. Yes. And Meditate day after day with patience, because just like with mediumship practice, you need to do it day in, day out, and then eventually the mind does become quiet and you expand more and more. It becomes a habit of your mind to go there and your mind wants to go there. So I think that's my take home message. Keep doing it and you will feel more and more connected with the universe around you. Absolutely beautiful. And, and that connection is in a word love yes that joins us all and i send so much love to you and to everybody listening may we just spread that outward thank you so much marjorie what a pleasure thank you suzanne
Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.